If you would, let's open up to Matthew chapter 5. And as you know, we're in a study on the Sermon on the Mount. And we have been in the fourth section. We're also, by the way, in your books, we're on lesson number 37. We're in the fourth section of the Sermon on the Mount, and we have entitled that section, Reinterpretations of the Law. We looked, if you remember, at what the Lord had to say on the subject of murder, and we looked at what he had to say regarding adultery, and then we had skipped his words on divorce found in verses 31 and 32, because I wanted to do this in two sessions, talk about what the Old Testament has to say on divorce and then look at what the New Testament has to say on divorce. So we decided to wait until we could put those two lessons back to back. So we had skipped over divorce and talked about oaths, taking vows, speaking the truth. So now what we're doing is we're going back to see what the Lord had to say on the subject of divorce. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. And remember now the, the basic theme for this uh, whole section, actually for the whole sermon, is righteousness. But in this particular section, the Lord Jesus is, is uh, teaching his listeners, his disciples, and you and I, that except our righteousness exceed the religious righteousness of such religious people as the scribes and Pharisees, we would in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he is explaining to us what true righteousness is. Now, it is statistically declared that eight out of every ten people are affected either directly or indirectly today by divorce. I wonder how many of you might raise a hand and say if that's true in your situation. Eight out of ten are directly or indirectly affected by divorce. That means either you yourself have experienced a divorce, your parents have experienced divorce, or one of your children, perhaps even a grandchild. How many of you could say that? That probably proves that statistic right there. Eight out of ten people. Um... And this increased rate of divorce in the last 80 years has absolutely been alarming. In 1920, not even 100 years ago, the U.S. statistic for divorce was one for every seven marriages that lasted for a lifetime. Today, there are actually more divorces than there are marriages that last for a lifetime. Is that sad or what? And the saddest thing of all is that, that that statistic is almost identical in the church as it is in the world. The mere mention of the word divorce is somewhat like the word cancer because both words carry with them the concepts of pain, terrible pain, and heartache, and separation, and a lot of fear. You know, when you have a child who stands at the altar... This is something you fear greatly. You know, you, you want that marriage to last for a lifetime. The word also carries with it, just like the word cancer, prevalence, because cancer and divorce are prevalent, and they are everywhere. There are very few people who have not been somehow affected by one or both of these frightening consequences of living, living in a sin-cursed world. How many of you have been affected directly or indirectly by, by cancer? Raise your hand. You know, just 
It's prevalent, isn't it? Cancer and divorce are absolutely prevalent. So the subject of divorce, which brings with it many, many painful memories and hurts and or guilt and a host of other such feelings, is not something joyful to teach about. Do you think in my flesh I really want to teach on this subject? I can assure you I do not. It's only really by the grace of God that my own parents weren't divorced because they went all the way to court to be divorced. And then God intervened miraculously. It is only by the grace of God that my husband and I are not divorced because the first five years of our marriage were very, very chaotic and full of turmoil. And again, it was only by God's grace that he intervened. I don't know the future for my own children. I pray. I I believe both of my daughters are very, very secure in their marriages, and I praise the Lord for that. I have a son who's not married. I don't know who he might marry. You know, we don't know. We don't know the future. But it's not something I come to because I want to. But this is part of the advantage of teaching through a book or books of the Bible rather than teaching topically. If you teach topically, you can pick and choose what you're going to teach on. You know, and therefore you can avoid a topic such as divorce or adultery. I didn't really want to teach on adultery either. But um, this is the advantage for all of us when we go verse by verse, you know, through a book or books of the scripture. Because we, we don't pick and choose. You could be in a church, for example, your whole life and never hear your preacher teach on divorce if he teaches only topically. And also, there is a definite advantage to doing the way I believe we should be doing Bible study, going verse by verse through a particular book. Or in this case, we're going through four books because we're going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the, the advantage is also that you never get the whole sequence of something. I mean, when you, if you go to church in one week, you're in the book of Joel, and the next week you're in the book of Jude, and then the next week you're in the book of Isaiah, and then the next week you might be in the book of Revelation. Do you get the flow of the scripture? No. And that's why most Christians, I believe, are rather biblically illiterate. They know this and they know that, but they don't see the whole big picture. They don't see how it fits together. So this is the great advantage of teaching expositionally, verse by verse, as we're doing. It's not really an advantage to me as the teacher because I, I would like to skip over this subject. But nonetheless, Christ himself addressed this subject, and he did so in the middle of the greatest sermon he ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And if he approached the subject and talked about it in this greatest sermon, and uh, the, the Lord God talked about it in several passages in the Old Testament, I know that it is an important subject and one that we dare not ignore. To see the whole issue of divorce and also the subject of remarriage. We're going to be talking about divorce and remarriage. Uh, To see these through the eyes, this issue through the eyes of God the Father and God the Holy Son. um, God the Holy Father and God the Holy Son and God the Holy Spirit. What we need to do is divide this topic into two parts. So this morning we're going to look at what God the Father had to say about divorce in the Old Testament scriptures, and then, Lord willing, we're going to look at what the Lord Jesus Christ had to say about the subject of divorce and remarriage in the New Testament scriptures. And we'll also look at what the Apostle Paul, who was inspired by God the Holy Spirit, had to say about the subject of divorce and uh, remarriage next week as we look at some New Testament pictures. Uh, pictures. <laughs> I am very, very tired. <laughs> scriptures. And I want you to understand that 
whatever I'm saying up here is, is not my opinion. This is God's opinion. This, these are God's words. You know, if I say something, it's just my opinion. I hope I make that very distinct to you, that this is just my opinion. But we're going to be looking at what God has to say about these subjects. So don't get angry and upset with me. It's not my will to offend anybody. I mean, after all, all of us are sinners. Some have committed one sin. Some have committed another sin. And the whole gist of the Sermon on the Mount is to show us how greatly we need the forgiveness and, and the, the cleansing of the Lord Jesus Christ, how greatly we need him and his righteousness imputed to us because on our, on our own, none of us are righteous. What is the Christian's attitude to be toward the matter of divorce? Is divorce always forbidden by God? Or does he sometimes allow it? And actually, this morning, we're going to be looking at one, one circumstance where he actually demanded it. That's strange. It was a unique situation, but he actually demanded divorce. Um, so does he sometimes allow it? And if so, under what circumstances does he allow divorce? What about this whole issue of remarriage following divorce? What does the scripture have to say? Um, so that's what we're going to be looking at as we look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. So let's read those scriptures right now. Um, actually, let me start up at verse 27 because it does, where we find the subject of divorce is very interesting because first of all, Jesus spoke about adultery, then divorce, and then he talked about this, the subject of making vows and keeping them. So it's very appropriately um, positioned between the subject of adultery and taking vows and keeping them. So let's look at verse uh, 27, start back there, where Jesus said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell." And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Verse 31, now here's what he has to say about divorce. It hath been said, remember this is by them of old, the traditions of the rabbis, whosoever shall put away or divorce his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Those are the two verses we'll be looking at today and next week. And then we've already discussed this next subject where he talked about um, oath-taking. He says in verse 33, again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt... Perform unto the Lord thine oaths, but I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. And then he goes on and on and talks about um, keeping your vows and oaths, which we have already discussed. All right. Now, whether we have actually physically murdered someone, remember when we talked about murder in the first part of this section, or whether we have merely hated someone, which is also terribly serious, isn't it? because we found out that hating somebody in God's eyes is comparable to murdering them, 
Or if we have called another human being a blundering idiot or a fool, raka, and that's what we looked at and talked about in verses 21 to 26, or whether we have committed the actual physical act of adultery or merely in our minds lusted outside of the marriage bond, which we learned is in God's eyes equivalent to adultery, or even if we have coveted that which belongs to another, or whether we have sworn a vow or made a promise that we did not keep, or told a lie, or even a slight exaggeration of the truth, or whether we have been divorced and or remarried contrary to biblical teaching, the point of this whole section of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount is, as I said, that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need, every one of us needs someone greater than ourselves to save us from suffering the penalty of our sins. Would you all agree on that? Amen. Every one of us needs the forgiveness and the cleansing power that only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ and us putting our faith in him and what he did there on the cross for us. So we are going to be dividing our last two-lesson study on divorce and remarriage into three main divisions, and you can see that probably in your notes. I do not have, I'm just, you know, it's, I, can't, I don't want to use the word lucky, but I'm doing well to be here, much less for you to have pictures. So just look at your books for the outline. Uh, we'll be considering this morning the Old Testament's teaching on divorce, and also we'll be looking at, at the uh, Pharisaic teaching on the subject of divorce. And we'll be looking at two main rabbinical schools of thought that were prevalent at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, divorce was a big issue at the time of Christ as it is today. And then in our lesson next week, Lord willing, we are going to look at what the New Testament has to say on the subject of divorce and remarriage. And we'll be looking at not only this scripture in Matthew chapter 5, but we'll be looking at Matthew 19 and what the Lord Jesus had to say there. And then we'll also discuss what the Apostle Paul had to say about the issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So let's begin. If you would turn to Deuteronomy, front of your, toward the front of your Bibles, one of the books of the Pentateuch. If you will look at Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. It says there, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness, uncleanliness or uncleanness in her, <clears throat> then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband, meaning the second husband, hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, meaning her first husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. I'll stop right there. All right, now in this Mosaic passage, we need to understand 
This is very important. You need to understand here that God was neither commanding nor demanding divorce. Now, that's how the Pharisees interpreted it, but that is not what God was doing. Rather, what he was doing here was regulating an already existing practice. Contrary to God's perfect will for marriage, which is to be for a lifetime, the Jewish men were putting away their wives. They were divorcing their wives. And they were, they were not only doing so, but they were doing so without a bill of divorcement. They were doing so for any reason that they saw convenient to use as an excuse. For example, well, she, she has no favor in my eyes. And, yeah, it does. I just want to get rid of her because I just see nothing I like in her anymore at all. She's not pretty enough anymore or whatever. <clears throat> so God, through Moses, presented some legislation on the matter in order to control a situation which had not only gotten out of hand, but which had become extremely unjust to the wives. Now, wives were not allowed to divorce their husbands, but the husbands were allowed to divorce their wives. So God was putting legislation on something that was already happening and happening for any kind of a, a frivolous pretense. Men were just getting rid of their wives whenever they wanted to. No bill of divorcement, no reason. And so God was doing this in order to protect the wives and, of course, the innocent parties, the children in these situation, in situations, because children always are affected in a divorce. And so are grandparents, right? So it was permitted, it was divinely permitted, divorce was divinely permitted because of the hardness of heart to which the Israeli men had succumbed. <clears throat> and it was reluctant permission at that. God didn't want to do this, but in his grace and in his mercy, he was allowing it so that the women who were being put out would not be subjected to exploitation and, um, and even recrimination. All kinds of things could have happened to the woman who was put out. Other people would maybe accuse her of adultery and stone her to death. Um, it was a terrible stigma on a woman to be put out of her own home, and um, she might, she would have no way to support herself. She would possibly have to turn to prostitution. So God was doing this to um, protect the wo women who were put out. It was also given to prohibit the remarriage of the woman who was put out, her remarriage to the first husband who had put her out. You know, if she, if she was, this is what Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 says, if she was divorced by her second husband, um, this also allowed her to be remarried, okay, so that she didn't have to turn to prostitution. God says she could, be, she could remarry, even though it defiled her. But because it defiled her, her first husband couldn't have her back. So if her second husband divorced her, or he died, her first husband could not remarry her. <clears throat> we'll talk more about that. But what we want to stress here is that <clears throat> although permission for divorce was legally granted and tolerated by God, the underlying principle, which we will see when we look at the word defiled, 
is that God views divorce as morally wrong in all cases. Even though he legally allowed it here, he sees it morally as always wrong. He suffered it. In other words, he permitted it. He allowed it through his permissive will on certain grounds of uncleanness, um, which we'll discuss, but only did he allow it with a bill or a certificate of divorcement. So he allowed it, but he never sanctioned it. He never sanctioned divorce. You see, the Deuteronomy passage was not a moral statute. Rather, it's a civil one. Remember how we talked about the different kinds of laws? Moral, judicial, civil. This is not a moral statute because morally, God hates divorce and divorce is always wrong. But this was a civil statute. It was a, 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 a legal one. You know, there's a lot of things in this world that are legal, but they're not moral, right? <clears throat> Legalized gambling and um, uh, 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 drinking, abortion, um, all kinds of things. And, you know, there's also the difference between God's permissive will and God's perfect will. For example, it's always his perfect will for a believer to marry a, another believer. He does not want us to be unequally yoked. But there's a lot of things that are morally wrong, but God allows them. And a lot of things that are legal in this world we live in, but they're morally wrong. Anyway, this wasn't a moral statute. It was a, it was a civil one. And among civil laws were those that tolerated or permitted certain practices, even though they were not in accordance with God's perfect will. <clears throat> The reason God tolerated or suffered these practices, such as usury or such as polygamy. A lot of people ask about polygamy. You know, why was David allowed to have all these wives in Solomon? Well, it wasn't God's perfect will at all, but he suffered it. He permitted it. It was for the sake of preventing even greater misery and crime. For example, this uh, bill of divorcement, particularly for the wives. God suffered this. Because uh, it, it would prevent a man, if he developed a really strong distaste for his wife, and yet he didn't want to break God's command about divorce, he might just beat his wife and beat his wife and abuse her until maybe she eventually died just to be rid of her. So God was allowing it for, you know, to prevent even further crime and atrocities and evils. Um, <clears throat> the civil law, which was actually very strict as we'll see. It's, it's stricter than you, than you think until we get into it. It's very, very strict. It was also allowed so as to remove the temptation from a mean-spirited husband to, as I just said, commit wife abuse and possible murder. By the way, only the man was permitted to divorce the wife. There was no provision, is no provision, found in the Old Testament for a, a woman to ever divorce her husband. And you might think that sounds very unfair, but Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, and it kind of helped me. He said, if this strikes us as being unjust or unduly severe, two things are be, to be taken into consideration. First, in the case of a husband being guilty of immorality, you know, if he committed adultery, the wife could bring it to the notice of the magistrate, and relief was then afforded her by her, uh, by her guilty partner suffering the death penalty. 
So, for example, if a woman was married to a man and he was unfaithful to her, she could take that situation before the council and he would be stoned to death. She couldn't divorce him, but she could (laughs) have him murdered. Secondly, Dr. Lloyd-Jones says this, Second, this statue was expressly designed for the prevention of violence and bloodshed to protect the weaker vessel, it being taken for granted that the man could protect himself if his wife should attack him. (laughs) Now these days, yes, I've known several situations where there was actually husband abuse. The wife was bigger than the guy, and and she, she beat him up. But that's not normally, you know, the situation. So make sure you note this. No divorce has ever been or ever will be in accordance with God's perfect will. You understand that, right? It is never, no matter what the circumstances, it is never his perfect will. It is always a deviation from the original design of the marriage institution. It is a result of sin, and human depravity. In fact, when the Pharisees test, uh, tested Jesus, which we'll see next week, uh, about this Deuteronomy 24 passage, they come to him and they actually test him about it. His emphatic answer to them included the fact that divorce goes against the divine ideal originally established for all married couples. He said to them, but from the beginning it was not so. And, of course, he was referring to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. God's design was for for divorce to be inconceivable and impossible. That was his original design. The two become one flesh, you know, and it's supposed to be inconceivable for one to be split in two. God's purpose for marriage was for indivisible intimacy that could not be broken. It was to be more intimate than even one's relationship to one's children because we are not one flesh with our children. They are our byproduct, but we are not ever said to be one flesh with them as we are with our spouse. Marriage is the deepest, most intimate human relationship that there is. The emphasis is not only on intimacy, but also on permanence. God's ideal was and is monogamous, enduring marriage. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now, I have to tell you a little something. At my daughter's wedding, one of my good friends made Kit Kat candy bars. Uh, well, she didn't make the candy bars, but she bought the candy bars, took off their wrappers, and then put on um, a wrapper that she had made. You know, you've seen that with my daughter. It said, Brad and Connie, uh, April 30th, 2005. And then she had asked me, did I want a scripture on there? And I said, yes, I would like to have, you know, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Well, she, I just assumed that she looked that up in the scripture and whatever. Um, and, and, <laughs> and I never really checked them over. I ate quite a few of them because I'm a chocoholic, but I never really, you know, how you glance at, did anybody at the wedding catch this? No? Okay, well, the, two nights ago, I had a few left over, so I was going to eat another one, <laughs> and I happened to look carefully at what she had done, and this is somebody, don't tell her this. 
what she put down there. I know, she can't listen to the tape. She put, she put down, what God hath joined together, let not man put us under. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, how many people saw that? But then when I got to thinking about it, I thought it was really kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's <it's> funny. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> anything less, you know, than monogamous, enduring marriage, anything less is a departure from God's divine perfect model, his perfect will. And the fall did not alter that ideal. It is still his perfect ideal. So, although a bill of divorcement made a divorce Legal, as far as human legislation was concerned, it never made divorce morally right in the sight of God. Furthermore, the additional divorce step that, uh, uh, that God put in here of having to secure a legal document served several significant purposes. And discussing these purposes is going to help us to see that God was attempting, really, in this legislation to to discourage and hinder divorce by adding the necessity of this procedure, you know, getting this bill of divorce. Men were already divorcing their wives, remember? They didn't have to have a bill of divorcement. They could just for any reason whatsoever say, get out. So God is really trying to hinder divorces by giving this legislation and saying now that they had to have a bill of divorcement, which had to be... um, Secured, and then it had to be witnessed. There had to be a reason given, and there had to be two witnesses to sign it. So one such purpose was a prevent. It was a preventative to haste. The necessity of going through the legal process of securing a divorce certificate helped to protect a wife from a spontaneous, thoughtless, emotional decision on the part of her husband. Maybe he'd get up that morning, you know, and he looked over at her, and she didn't look too great, and. And then she burned the toast, and he said, you're out of here. So this, you see, this would prevent such haste. He could no longer just say, get out, for he first had to go through this legal process, find the two witnesses, and then establish before the court that there was something unclean about her. Secondly, it was for the protection of the, of the wife. The bill of divorcement gave the wife who had been put out by her husband some legal protection, you see, she had a document in her hand after she was put out. So it would protect her from those who would accuse her of not having fulfilled her marital obligation to her husband. Without a bill of divorcement, if she was kicked out, people might think, well, she just wasn't performing you know, her marital obligation or, or whatever. Think all kinds of awful things about her. But now it protected her from especially being accused of adultery. As if she didn't have that document, people could accuse her of adultery and therefore stone her to death. The bill of divorcement signed by her former husband and two other witnesses would clearly state that she had not been put away, she had not been divorced because of unfaithfulness on her part. You didn't need a bill of divorcement if you were unfaithful because you were just stoned to death. So she would be safe from suffering the death penalty with that document in her hand. Now, the Hebrew word which is translated as uncleanness, which you see in verse 1, 
or indecency, uncleanness or indecency, was apparently purposely left vague by God the Holy Spirit who inspired Moses to write this. They had, there has been a lot of debate, not only by the, the rabbis down through the centuries, but also by Christian expositors as to exactly what this Hebrew word that you see interpreted uncleanness, exactly what it means. And um, nobody has ever come conclusively to a decision. It sort of means the nakedness of a thing, whatever that means. But, and that's, it's not really very helpful. Alfred Edersheim, in his book Sketches of Jewish, Jewish Social Life, suggests that it may mean repeated indecent exposure. Now, imagine that. Back in those days, women, especially Jewish women, were covered from head to toe. So if there was some wife running around continuously in the nude, she had a mental problem, right? <laughs> So we're not really sure exactly what this means. I think God the Holy Spirit left it vague because he really didn't want to give them any reason, any legitimate reason for divorcing their wives. As mentioned, the word uncleanness could not have referred to the act of adultery. That's one thing we know it did not refer to is adultery for the simple reason that adultery was punishable by death. In fact, the word adultery, it's interesting, the word adultery is never used in the Old Testament in regard to divorce. And why is that? <laughs> because the adulterer or the adulteress was required to be put to death, and his or her spouse had no need to then secure a bill of divorcement. So you never see the word adultery used in conjunction with the word divorce in the Old Testament. Now, you will see it in the New Testament, all right? Because of God's grace, adulterers are no longer stoned to death. Now, third, a third reason for God's legislation was for permission to remarry. The, the Mosaic legislation regarding the bill of divorcement permitted the divorced wife to marry again, but for the husband who divorced her to never be permitted to remarry her. And this, you see, was very wise on God's part because it, it served as yet another restraining tactic on the part of God, to deter the first divorce from ever occurring. If a man knew that someone else could take and marry his wife who he put out because she burnt the toast, he might think twice about it, right? Men are very highly possessive and, and jealous. So, therefore, it would deter him you know, it would, from, from put, putting her out for just any old reason if he you know, really didn't hate her. If it was just a spur of the moment kind of thing, and uh, doing you know, if he did, it would make him impossible for him ever, ever to have her back. Um, so he might refrain from putting her out in the first place. The reason given for this law was that her second marriage defiled her. So you see how God looks at divorce. How does He look at it? It defi you know it defiles if a it remarriage defiles the partner. But in this case, um, both partners actually in, this, in the remarriage, in this case the blame for the defilement of the put out wife though falls on the husband who put her out. And so God in his mercy allows her to remarry because it wasn't her fault that she was put out. 
It was her husband's fault. So the primary blame for the defilement is put on the first husband who put her out. But prior to this legislation, many women who had been put out by their husbands, you see, would have begged their husbands to take them back. That would have, it would have been pathetic, and it was pathetic. They would have begged them, please, please, please take me out, because, you know, it was such a terrible stigma on them, and they had no way to support themselves, and they weren't allowed to remarry. And many of them would probably go out and commit suicide or, or turn to prostitution, all kinds of awful things. Uh, so those husbands knew, you see, before this legislation, they knew they could take their wife back anytime they wanted. She would be sitting out there waiting for him to say, okay, come back in the house, and, you know, he could treat her like a piece of dirt again. Well, you see how God was protecting the women in this situation? So the primary purpose for the Deuteronomy 24 passage on divorce was not to command divorce at all or to even give an excuse for divorce. Rather, it was to show the potential wickedness of divorce, and hopefully it was to prevent many divorces from occurring at all, you know, in the first place. If all preventative measures failed, at least this Mosaic legislation helped to protect the women who were usually the innocent party. From, uh, it helped protect them from possible slander and uh, death or a life alone with no protecting husband or a life turned to prostitution. So God's purpose then was not to provide for divorce but to prevent it. But of course you know the rabbis down through the centuries totally topsy-turvied everything and turned this whole passage around to mean the opposite. All right, another scripture I want to talk about is found in Ezra 10. For time's sake, I won't read it, but uh, Ezra 10, verses 1 to 5. Intermarriage between Jews and pagans, or Jews and Gentiles. Unless a Gentile had converted to Judaism, intermarriage between Jews and any of the pagan peoples was clearly uh, prohibited in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 5. And why was that? Well, because intermarriage would not only lead to the eventual assimilation or the absorp- absorption of the Jews into the Gentile races so that there would no longer be a, a, a nation of Israel. There would no longer be God's chosen people, the Jews, which was important to have because through the Jews would come the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman. But it would also turn his people to idolatry. If the Jews were constantly marrying pagan people, those Jews eventually would turn to the, the gods of the pagans. And we see this is exactly what happened in Israel's history many, many times. It happened to who supposedly is supposed to be the wisest man in the, in the world was Solomon. I don't understand why he was so wise if he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I can't imagine his uh, income tax return, his joint income tax return. <laughs> 700 wives, how could he be wise? Oh, my. Um, but it turned even him to false gods toward the end of his life. So intermarriage was completely prohibited by God in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 5. However, the Jews, as usual, they disobeyed God over and over again. And mass intermarriage between Jews and pagans occurred both before the Babylonian captivity and, again, after the Babylonian captivity. So that by the time of Malachi chapter 2, we find that Jewish men 
were slow to learn their lesson, for they were not only again marrying pagan wives, but they were divorcing their own Jewish wives in order to marry the pagan wives. And we'll talk about that Malachi passage in a minute. So this intermarriage of the Jews with pagans was a very serious problem. As I said, if Israel went out of existence, the Messiah couldn't be born. He needed Israel to remain one, uh, to, be, to be a nation in existence by the time of the birth of Christ. Um, it, it was a matter of national preservation. It was a matter of God's whole redemptive program for the world. So it was a situation in which, the, and it was also a situation in which the testimony of God himself was at stake because it could be totally obliterated from the world. If all the Jews, you know, intermarried and uh, eventually went out of existence, there would be no testimony for Jehovah God, the true God in the world anymore. The whole world would have turned to pagan gods. So because of the severity of this situation, Ezra chapter 10 verses 1 to 5 presents us with a very unique case in which God actually commanded divorce. Very unique. You have to understand the setting and why God did this. The Jews who were returning from their captivity in Babylon, had been there for 70 years, were told to put away their pagan wives. And this command was made necessary because they had disobeyed God's strict intermarriage prohibition in the first place and because it was absolutely essential for the preservation of Israel as a nation and as a testimony for Jehovah God himself. However, the whole reason I bring this up is you say, why are you telling us about this? Well, the reason for this is because over the centuries and even today, there are people who will look at this Ezra 10 passage of scripture, and there's another one over in Nehemiah chapter 13, and they will use it as an excuse uh, to divorce an unbelieving spouse. But they cannot use those passages. Those passages represent a unique situation that was valid only to the struggling to survive Jewish nation during the Old Testament economy. You cannot use them as excuses to divorce an unbelieving spouse today. Divorcing an unbelieving spouse today does not serve to maintain our purity as a nation because the, the church is dispersed throughout all nations. Neither does it maintain our purity as a testimony for God. In fact, if all Christians suddenly divorced their unbelieving spouses, that would, not, that would be a terrible testimony for our God, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be a terrible a testimony to the world. Furthermore... The Apostle Paul addressed this very issue in the New Testament, and we'll look at this next week as we um, discuss 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 14, where Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that the believer is never, ever, ever to initiate a divorce with an unbelieving spouse. Did you get that? Never, ever. If you are married to an unbeliever, you are never to be the one to initiate the divorce. As a matter of fact, your very presence in the home sanctifies the marriage. 
and it sanctifies the children. It gives both the spouse and the children a much better opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved because God the Holy Spirit is present in that home through you. And we'll discuss this in further detail next week. All right, let's look now at Malachi 2, verses 10 to 16. Again, you just read them at home or kind of glance over them. I need to really move on very quickly here. But some of the Israelites at the time of Malachi, this was about 450 B.C. now, were still profaning Israel's holiness by marrying pagan women. They never did learn their lessons, and so even by the time of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, they're still marrying pagans. And this intermarriage was bad enough, but as I mentioned earlier, many of them were divorcing their Jewish wives in order to marry these pagan women. Divorcing their Jewish wives to to actually marry the pagans. So Malachi said this. He said this in um, 2.15. And did not he, meaning God, make one? Okay, and when he said that, what he was doing is he was taking them back, just as Jesus is going to do 400 years later. You know, Malachi was 400 years before Christ. So 400 years later, Jesus would do exactly as Malachi did, and he would take the, the Jewish people right back to the original creation of man and woman when the two became one in marriage. That actually goes back to Genesis 2.24. So through Malachi, God was saying that because Israel was one, therefore no husband should break faith and national unity by divorcing the wife of his youth. And, And then Malachi used very, very strong language to emphasize God's opinion regarding divorce. What is God's opinion regarding divorce? He hates it. It says there, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. He hates it. And the Hebrew word for hateth literally means he detests it. It is not his perfect will at all. And if God strongly hates something or detests something, then clearly it ought not to be done. Would you agree? But then he also hates pride, doesn't he? There's a lot of things God hates. What we need to understand, a very important distinction to notice, is that God says he hates divorce. It does not say that God hates the one who is divorced. Just like we hate sin, but we still love the sinner. And it's a distinction that we need, as Christians, we need to remember when we are ministering to those who have experienced a divorce, whether it was their doing or or not, and whether it was biblically based or not. God feels the same way toward, toward all men. He hates our sin, but he loves us. And we, need, we do not need to treat someone who has been divorced as though they are a second-class citizen, because look unto thyself. And remember all the sins of our own hearts. We've been convicted of this just when we looked at uh, all the other things, murder and adultery and oath-taking, etc. All right, so the Creator's plan was no divorce, and that we see in Genesis 2.24. You can read about that in your notes. I need to move on to what did the Pharisees teach about divorce at the time of Christ? What was it that the Jewish people at the time of the Lord Jesus were being taught erroneously by their religious leaders with regard to divorce? Well, for one thing, 
the vast majority of the rabbis had totally misinterpreted the Deuteronomy 24 passage that we looked at. They saw it the way that they wanted to see it, of course, as they saw everything. They saw it as a divine command to divorce a spouse who had been unclean or indecent rather than as a concession for divorce, which was primarily intended to protect the innocent party from the hardness of men's hearts. So the big debate of the Jews at the time of Christ was with regard to the meaning of the word uncleanness. See, that's what they honed in on. They didn't see it as God just allowing it because of the hardness of their own hearts. They said God is demanding divorce if a woman is unclean. So then their big debate became over what does this word unclean? Remember we said it's the nakedness of a thing. What does it mean? And so they were divided into school, two schools of thought regarding what the word uncleanliness or uncleanness referred to. One came from a rabbi named Shammai and the other from Rabbi Hillel. First of all, let's look at the, the rabbinic school of Shammai. The rabbis and other spiritual leaders of Israel who adhered to the teachings of a, a famous rabbi by the name of Shammai, who was a conservative, believed that this word uncleanness referred to a gross offense of marital impropriety. Something, of course just short of full-fledged adultery. They knew it didn't refer to adultery. Why? Because the adulterer was put to death, stoned to death. So they knew God wouldn't be talking about adultery because God had already said the adulterer was to be stoned to death. So they said it's something just short of adultery. Um, and they taught that it referred to some very serious matrimonial offense that highly humiliated the other spouse, some kind of sexual impurity such as bestiality or incest, incestuousness or, as I said, a woman who completely just totally ran around nude all the time or something really, really extreme. Now, this was the conservative school of thought on this. So they were saying divorce is only allowed in some extreme situation like this. Unfortunately, at the time of Christ, there were very few rabbis who held to this conservative school of thought on this issue. Most of them went over to the uh, school of Rabbi Hillel, who interpreted, it was a very liberal rabbi, who said that the word uncleanness allowed for a man to divorce his wife for any cause. <clears throat> um, he interpreted the word uncleanness in the widest possible sense. These rabbis said that a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner. If, boy, I would have been in trouble long ago, especially the time I sautéed uh, a cucumber in butter, thinking it was zucchini. Yes. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> they said that a man could divorce his wife if she walked around with her hair down. Uh, in, you know, in public or in front of another man, or if she was being troublesome. <laughs> Again, I would have been in trouble. <laughs> or if she was given to quarreling or nagging. Or if she spoke to a man in the streets. Remember how we talked about how a woman couldn't talk to a man when they were out in the public. Or if she spoke disrespectfully about her, disrespectfully about her in-laws. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Uh, Rabbi Akaba, 
who was of this school of Hillel, even went so far as to say that the phrase, she find no favor in his eyes, remember when we read that in the Deuteronomy 24 passage? He said that that phrase meant that a man could divorce his wife if he found another woman who was prettier than her. You know, she no longer, I no longer find any favor in her, so I can divorce her. Naturally, <clears throat> for those hardened, lustful men who desired to replace their aging wives with other younger, prettier women, the Hillel interpretation had a far greater appeal, right? So no wonder more men were going with the Hillel interpretation rather than the Shammai interpretation. So this was the main teaching in first century Israel. You know, in the apocryphal writings, the, the books, um, they call them the intertestamental books, which we don't have in our Bibles, but you will find in some Bibles that appear between Malachi and Matthew. We do not believe they are God-inspired. But uh, one of those apocryphal writings actually contains these words. And this tells you why we do not believe these books were inspired. But uh, it does reflect the perverse influence of the rabbis on this matter of, of divorce. It says this, quote, The son of Sirach saith, If she, meaning a wife, go not as thou wouldest have her go, cut her off from thy flesh, give her a bill of divorce, and let her her go, end of quote. So that's why we don't say that the books of the Apocrypha are inspired because they contain such things as that. In other words, what it says is that if a woman won't go the way you want her to go, like if my husband says turn right and I turn left, he can get rid of me. That's not God-inspired. What? Yeah. And my husband, you know, I, I am uh, directionally challenged a lot of times when he says turn right, I do turn left. Do you do that? I just, I don't mean to, but I just do. <laughs> and um, Josephus, you know the famous Jewish historian Josephus? He was also influenced by this school of Hillel. And we know so from his writings. He says this, he says, quote, The law regarding divorce runs thus. He that would be divorced from his wife... For any cause whatsoever, as many such causes there are, let him give her a bill of divorce. So he went along with that school of thought, and as a matter of fact, he did divorce his wife even after she had given him three children. He put her out for whatever cause. So the proponents of the Hillel view saw the only necessary requirement for divorce as the securement of a certificate of divorcement signed by two witnesses. They did say, of course, we have to have this divorce, but they uh, this certificate, but we can have it for any reason. Any reason at all could be given as an uncleanness on the part of the woman. Um, by the way, Jewish women simply did not divorce their husbands in those days, not even in the New Testament days. They did not divorce. Them. Now, Roman women in certain situations could divorce their husbands, and Greek women could, but Jewish women, even in the New Testament days, did not, or early New Testament days, did not divorce their wives. But anyway, the religious rulers in this situation were not only missing the spirit of the law, they were missing the letter of the law because they had totally missed God's true teaching on divorce. Although they avoided thinking or even talking about the, the, uh, the injustice of divorce 
or the moral issues concerning divorce or the emotional turmoil that divorce caused not only for the wife and the children involved and of course the grandchildren I mean the grandparents involved yet we find in the Talmud great rigidity you know they made a this is typical of the of the Jewish religious leaders they didn't think about the emotions and the moral aspect of it and the justice and all that sort of thing but they made a big to do about the actual form of the divorce papers I mean, this is just so typical of how we have been hearing and learning about them. So in the Talmud, you will find that the divorce, the certificate of divorcement had to be written in exactly 12 lines. No more and no less. Exactly 12 lines. And this is the hypocritical foolishness of those who are forever straining at a gnat while they're swallowing a camel. And this is the situation that we find ourselves in today. Exactly. We laugh at them, but it's the same situation we find ourselves in today. Because from the world's perspective, there is no longer such a thing in our country as improper grounds for divorce. We have, we have today what are called no-fault divorces, where both parties agree that there is no particular fault or reason for the divorce other than the fact that they no longer want to be married to one another. You hear the, you know, the thing, I don't love him anymore. You know what? Love is not a feeling. It's an act of the will. You will yourself to love somebody. The emotions fade sometimes after the first year, right? But then you, you, you love grows. And you will yourself to love. It's never easy to love. A lot of times it's, it's work to love. But nowadays, whatever reason, they generally say we just have fallen out of love with each other. Divorce has been made all too easy an alternative to settling marital trials. You know, if divorce is not an option, you are forced to settle your problems, right? You have to. You have to, well, listen, we're one flesh. This, this thing is for a lifetime. We've got this problem. We have come, let us reason together and resolve it. But now, because divorce is so easily made available, well, we just, we won't, we, we just won't address that issue. We'll split. In fact, those who consider themselves to be the enlightened of our day are making an all-out effort to convince us that we would all be better off without the institution of marriage altogether. One such British physician has written a book called The Death of the Family in which he suggests to his readers that the best thing society can do for itself is eliminate the family unit entirely. There are many proponents of this kind of philosophy today. He writes that families are the main cause for our Western imperialistic worldview, which he suggests needs to be exchanged for a global worldview. If these kind of people had their way, everybody would just live together, and there would be no marriages. It would be one big communal family, not separate family units. A woman's liberation advocate named Katie Millett, in her book entitled Sexual Politics, says, quote, the family unit must go because it is the family that has oppressed and enslaved women, end of quote. You know what? My family has not oppressed and enslaved me. 
I hate to see him go. <laughs> I love my family. Good gracious, I just don't feel complete without my family. What rubbish, what satanic lies. An ever-increasing divorce rate and the trend toward ever quicker, cheaper. I mean, there's competition in the newspapers for who, which lawyer you know, has the cheapest divorce cost. Uh, a trend toward ever quicker, cheaper, and easier divorces is rapidly making the dreams of these anti-family advocates a reality. But what we should examine is the evidence. And when we examine the evidence, we find that it clearly shows that the deterioration of the family does not, in fact, produce a healthier, happier society. Quite the contrary. It does not help man on his supposedly upward trend toward ultimate perfection. In fact, we have more and more depression and crime and violence and all kinds of other problems directly related to the increase in the divorce rate and the breakup of the family. There is no doubt that where there is a decline in spiritual principles, there is also a deterioration in morality. And all history bears witness to the truth that when godliness is at a low ebb, the institution of marriage is held in careless esteem. As the claims of, the, of Almighty God are less and less regarded by those of both high and low estate, the obligations of holy wedlock are whittled away and increasingly disregarded. When a country once built on the principles of God's word begins to tamper with the marriage institution and the family and makes increasing elastic its divorce laws, then just as was true of first century Israel, it is a definite proof of its moral and ethical decline. Therefore, our country is in trouble today, is it not? It is. Well, Lord willing, next week we will look at what the New Testament has to say on divorce, what the Lord Jesus himself has to say in the Sermon on the Mount, and also what the in chapter 19 of Matthew, and then what the Apostle Paul has to say we're a little bit late. Let's close in a word. I'm okay? I'm okay. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this very difficult lesson. Thank you for the grace to get through it. Impress upon us by your Holy Spirit, Father, the glorious blessing of the marriage bond. Whether our spouses know you or not, impress upon our hearts, Lord, the responsibilities that we have as Christian wives toward our husbands even if they are unsaved, even more so if they are unsaved, because our marriage to them sanctifies the home and presents a constant witness to them of you. Father, help us by our faithfulness in our marriages that we have today to give testimony to the glorious union of the Lord Jesus Christ with his bride, the church. For that's what we are a picture of. And thank you too, Father, for the forgiveness of past mistakes which you offer to us through the death and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, apart from whom none of us would be declared righteous and apart from whom none of us would enter into your kingdom. We know, as the Apostle Paul said, that, that sins in the past are beyond, beyond us and we have been forgiven of them. This one thing I do, he said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, we press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, if we, had made, if we have made the mistake of an unbiblical divorce in the past, 
and we have asked your forgiveness, we are clean. But, but now we know the biblical standard. And so from this day forward, may we do that which is right. And we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your forgiveness, and we thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for your salvation. And we love you, Jesus, for it is in your name we pray.